why do we do literature evangelism? What's the purpose for it? Uh, we're going to look at some of the history of literature evangelism, both in the world, uh, in the Christian church, as well as in Adventism, and, and see really how uh, literature evangelism has had a profound impact on the history of the Advent movement. And so we're going we're gonna to take a look at that and then uh, look at a few passages in the Bible, uh, a few quotes from Ellen White. And then in the next session, it's going to be more of the practical application. Here's uh, some different ideas about how you can be involved and practically do things, although we're not actually going to go out and pass out literature during these sessions, uh, although in the afternoon, I think it's the afternoon, um, is the outreach time. Uh, we will be able to do that then. So uh, a little bit of background, and then the next session, more of the practical application of it. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer uh, before we begin. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, be gathered together to grow uh, more, not only in our uh, spiritual uh, walk with you, uh, but in the practical uh, application of that walk and in, in actually being involved in reaching out to share what we know and believe with others. And so we pray that as we talk about literature evangelism, as that's one aspect of that sharing, uh, that you would be with us and help us to see the importance and the significance of sharing the printed page uh, here uh, in 2018. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, just to share for uh, a couple of seconds really quick about who I am, so you can at least know a little bit about that. My name is Robert uh, Kareni, and I work for Upper Columbia Conference, which is the home conference that we are in, uh, the local conference that, that we are located right now. And I am the Literature Ministries Coordinator uh, for this conference, which means uh, anything that has to do with sharing literature, that ultimately is what I try to coordinate and help uh, happen at the local church level. So uh, I've been involved in literature evangelism since 2002 uh, as a student uh, canvasser. I started in San Jose, canvassed all throughout California. Almost any city south of San Francisco and Oakland in California, pretty much any of those cities have knocked doors and canvassed, uh, as well as in Kansas and Nebraska and Michigan and a little bit in uh, Southern Union. Uh, not yet in Canada. I know that there's a couple here from Canada, but... Uh, a wide variety of places across the U.S. and uh, really had a, uh, been privileged to be a part of, of having that experience. And so uh, it's one of my passions is to be able to share with people about literature evangelism. And so that's what we're going to do here. Just to give you an overview of what we're going to go over here today, if uh, you look at the screen here, uh, we're going to talk about literature evangelism in the world and the Christian church and then move into the Adventist church uh, we're going to talk about how coal porters uh, got their start, how coal portering began. And then we're going to talk about how literature had an impact in the growing Adventist church. And then we're going to talk uh, specifically about the, the effectiveness of literature. And we're going to go through the first uh, three or four of those pretty quickly and uh, get down to that. But hopefully you'll have at least uh, a broad view of uh, how literature has impacted each of those various areas. Um, in, in talking about uh, publishing in world history, uh, there was a TV show uh, in, uh, I think it was either 1999 or 2000, where this uh, network went around and they interviewed a bunch of people, people that wrote for like Time Magazine, people who were influential thought leaders, and they interviewed people and asked them, who do you think is the most influential person of the last thousand years? Now this is 99-2000, so that's the end of a millennium. Millennium is 1,000 years, so the last 1,000 years. So from the year 1,000 to the year 2,000. And they wanted to figure out who's the most influential person of that 1,000-year period. Who are some of the people that you would, you would guess might be some of those most influential people? Yeah, there was presidents. There was you know, at least four or five presidents, Abraham Lincoln, people like that. Yeah, that was actually the number one pick was Johann Gutenberg. Uh, and Johann Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press, and the first thing they ever printed on it was the Bible. That was in 1455. Now, what was important about this invention? Why was he named the most influential person of the last thousand years? 
it was because it made it far easier to re reproduce literature in mass quantities, more than just a few. Because up until then, if you wanted to get a copy of the Bible, you would take uh, one of the scrolls or, or texts and copy it by hand. And you would write out the entire thing. And so you can imagine how, you know, if you're writing an essay in school or something on a, on a test, like how tired your hand gets. You know, imagine writing the entire Bible, every word in the Bible. That's, that's how long it took to reproduce things. And even just a shorter piece of literature took the same amount of time. Uh, I mean, the same, uh, what's, what's the word? The same, not the same length, but the same, the same rate. Took the same rate of writing just to get a little piece of literature. And so this invention made it possible once you set it up. Now, it took a long time. You had to set every single letter. You know, it's a lot longer than it is now. You can't just, like, hit print and it prints out on a, on a printer. But still, you could, once you got that page set, you could make as many copies as you wanted. That was a lot faster. So it made it a lot easier. And it created, what that did is it created a way for ideas to be spread very quickly. So instead of, usually, back in those days, if you got news of something, it wasn't because a newspaper came or because an email or a text message. It's because somebody came, a person showed up and they said, here's what happened over in this town. But this made it uh, possible for ideas to be spread much more rapidly, and uh, that opened up a whole new world of possibilities, and, and we'll see why that was significant here in just a second. And uh, so in following along with that train of thought, it, one of the most important aspects of the invention that Gutenberg made, which was the, the printing press, was not just what it was, but when it was made. Uh, do you remember what year... The, the first Bible was printed? 1455. It was on the last slide. 1455. Now, uh, what was going on at that period in time? What, what period of time do we refer to uh, that's during that? It's the Dark Ages, right? Uh, what was the major cause of the darkness? Why do we call it the Dark Ages? People didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the knowledge that came with having the Bible. And that's because it was, it was really confined. It was hidden. Uh, it was really just reserved for uh, maybe, you know, the people that were uh, royalty or clergy, uh, you know, really high up. Most people didn't even know how to read. And so it was, uh, truths were hidden, and that was the cause of the darkness. In fact, Johann Gutenberg, who invented the, pre uh, the printing press, this is what he said uh, about... Uh, the fact that it was being confined. He said, God suffers in the multitude of souls whom His Holy Word cannot reach. Religious truth is imprisoned in a small number of manuscript books which confine instead of spreading the public treasure. In other words, he's saying uh, it's, it's hidden to the point that it's not reaching the people that it should be able to reach. It's confined instead of being spread. Then he continued on saying, let us break up the seal that seals holy things and give wings to the truth. Remember that phrase. In order that she may go and win every soul that comes into this world by her word, no longer written at great expense by hand easily palsied. Remember we talked about writing out your essay, writing out books. We don't have to have that anymore. But he says it's multiplied like the wind by an untiring machine. That was his vision for what the press could do. It could spread instead of confine truth. Which is what was happening. It's easy for us to, to not really realize that that's the reality of those days because we have printed literature, we have the Bible, we have Bible on our phones, we have Bible on our laptops, we have the Bible anywhere we turn. But then it wasn't like that. That was his vision for that. And notice what Ellen White said uh, that sounds very similar to what Johann Gutenberg said. She said, There is a great need of men who can use the press to the best advantage that the truth may be given wings to speed it to every nation and tongue and people. Isn't that very similar to what Gutenberg said? This thing, uh, it's, it's like giving the truth wings so it can go and, and spread it. So Gutenberg's vision for, for the press was very similar to what Ellen White said many years later, that if we use the press, we can really give the truth wings. Uh, one other quote here from Gutenberg uh, uh, says this, uh, talking about his invention again. Yes, it is a press, certainly, but a press from which soon shall flow in inexhaustible streams the most abundant and mo uh, most marvelous liquor that has ever flowed to relieve the thirst of men. Through it, God will spread His word. A spring of pure truth shall flow from it. Like a new star, it shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause a light heretofore unknown to shine amongst men. 
That was his vision, that this invention could spread the gospel, could spread truth to people who hadn't heard. The Gutenberg Bible, and this is a picture of uh, what one of them uh, looked like. Uh, it was printed in 1455. The Dark Ages had been going on in that, at that time for 979 years. Almost a thousand years of the Dark Ages were going on when Gutenberg printed the first edition of his Bible. That's a long time, right? Almost a thousand years the, the truth had been closed up and Gutenberg printed the Bible. And 60 years later, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the chapel of Wittenberg in 1517, which, as we know, last year was 500 years ago. 60 years after it had been going on for almost a thousand years, less than a hundred years later, uh, there was a movement that was beginning. And one of those things, uh, one of the causes for that movement was because of the printing press. Now, as you know, Rome was very powerful uh, at this period of time. Uh, reformers had started to work. The invention of the press launched their work forward. In fact, uh, in three years after 1517, Martin Luther also was a writer, which means he needed to be able to spread that, and he was able to do that because of the press. In three years after 1517, when he nailed the 95 Theses, it says 30,000 tracts of Luther's writings were distributed. So... Not only was he able to preach and to share uh, in that way, but a lot of the spread of knowledge that he was, uh, that he was uh, behind was spread because of literature. Literature would make its way to another country, and then somebody would read that and then begin to develop their own uh, version of, of what he was preaching and sharing. And so literature had a big influence even uh, in the Protestant Reformation, in the early years of the Reformation. And so publishing was one of the primary weapons that defeated the iron grip of the Roman church. And uh, a lot of times that gets lost because uh, we think of the people and not necessarily the tools that they used. And so, as, of course, as you come down through time, uh, as Christianity began to spread, uh, we get to uh, the period of time where the Adventist church uh, the Advent movement began, and we're going to look a little bit at the history of publishing in the early Adventist church. Uh, the early Millerite movement was advanced significantly because of publishing. In fact, if you've seen the, the video that they did, uh, I think a year, maybe it's been two years now, uh, it's called Tell the, I think it's Tell the World. Uh, you remember Joshua Himes, you know, a real eccentric guy. Uh, one of the main things that he did, not only did he take William Miller to the big cities and begin to to go to the huge venues and share uh, and, and preach, but he started uh, several publications that Miller wrote for, and then they began to share that, and, and they printed thousands and thousands of copies. And many times before Mil William Miller would go to a place, they would be sharing the literature, and people would already be at least familiar with what his teachings were before he showed up and preached. And so he used the printed page to be able to advance that even before uh, 1844. Uh, there was other people that were involved. Ellen Harmon, you know her more uh, familiar, more familiarly. I don't know if that's a word, but uh, you, you would recognize the name Ellen White more than Ellen Harmon. But this is before she was married. This is when she was still uh, in in her teenage, early teenage years. She and some of her friends hand copied some tracks. Uh, the the early pioneers and the early uh, uh, Millerite movement adherents, uh, most of them were not very rich. They were, they were very poor. Most of them didn't even have money to go out and pay for, for printing to be done. So they hand-copied some of the tracts uh, that they were using. Of course, after 1844 and all that, uh, the Advent movement began to uh, gain some deeper understanding of, of critical Bible truths. And uh, one of the ways that God showed Ellen White to be able to share that was uh, through a vision that she got in 1848. 1848 was the first publishing vision that Ellen White received. In fact, if you have, most of you probably have access at least digitally to the publishing ministry, uh, the very first chapter is the story of how the publishing work got started in the Adventist church. And let me just read uh, a paragraph or so uh, that shows what, uh, what happened when she was done with that vision. This is what she said. She came out of vision and she said to her husband, whose name was what? 
James. She said, James, I have a message for you. And then that's where we pick up. She says, you must begin to print a little paper and send it out to the people. Let it be small at first, but as the people read, they will send you means with which to print. And it will be a success from the first. And from this small beginning, it was shown to be to me to be like streams of light that went clear around the world. And so Ellen White's vision for publishing was, it's going to start small, you're going to have challenges with it, but eventually it's going to continue to grow and grow and gain momentum, and it's going to be like streams of light that go all around the world. That's the influence that the work of literature evangelism is going to have in the Advent movement. And she came out, she had a vision for James White. Now, if you look at some of the history of of publishing and and James White and the work that he did with that... um, there was a lot of discouragements that he met. He actually decided to stop printing several times, and every time he decided that, Ellen White would have another vision and come out and say, you're not to stop printing. That's exactly what Satan wants, and God wants you to continue to do the work. Your work is to write. And so the first publication, now that was in, anybody remember the year? I didn't really emphasize it. It was on the last one. 1848. 1848, that's pretty good. See, if you remember 1844 and 1888, just kind of combine them, and that was Ellen White's first publishing vision, 1848. Now, the, the first publication was actually the next year, in 1849. It was called The Present Truth. They sent out a thousand copies of them, and they were sent out completely free. What they did is they would go, uh, donations were the only thing that would cover the cost. Uh, they were printed in a little town uh, called Middletown, Connecticut. And they lived in... Uh, a town eight miles away from there. And so as James was preparing the, the present truth to be printed, he would walk eight miles each way back and forth just to make all the edits and to see the, see the uh, uh, drafts and things like that. And so he got a lot of walking in preparing this literature. And uh, when, when they got it all, he got to use a friend's buggy. It's what they had back in the day instead of a car. And they took the literature to their home uh, what they did is they put all the literature in the middle of uh, a room, and you can read about this in publishing ministry in that chapter, but they all huddled around it, and it says, uh, with uh, a small group of interested ones gathered around the tracks with, with tears in their eyes, and they prayed for the literature that was going to go out. They hand-addressed everything, and then James White took all thousand of those copies and carried them the eight miles back to the town uh, to be able to send them out. Uh, a lot of dedication... Um, went into sending out the first uh, publications. And this is what, what it looked like. That was the present truth there on the left. That's the first edition of it. And you see here, this is a copy of uh, the agreement that they had uh, to be able to pay for the literature that was printed. And this is the street uh, where, uh, where that uh, shop was. So it's uh, kind of interesting to see some of what... Th- now, that's obviously not when he did it, because those are cars. But uh, that's... What it, one of the earliest pictures that, that uh, we've been able to find uh, for that. And that's the receipt for the printing, I guess is what that was. Um, so uh, as, as the, the work began to grow, um, they, they found that there was an issue with the publishing work. It was, it was growing, and God was blessing it. You remember what the, the vision was that Ellen White had, that it would start small, but it would continue to grow? It was growing, but there was an issue with the fact that it was growing. And that was that there was no owning body. There wasn't a church that could own the press. Now you can imagine that. You try to have an organization, but there's nothing that owns that organization. And so it was really just James White that was doing a lot of it. So people would accuse him, hey, you're doing this for profit. People are sending in all these donations and you're just taking that and living lives of ease and luxury and... And that was, uh, they actually did a review and found out that he was losing money by running it. But a, a lot of stuff was, was happening because of that. But the, the biggest issue was they didn't have anything to own the press. And so James White really urged for the church to incorporate and to become an official organization. Why? Because we needed something to be able to own the press. The publishing work was growing. And so finally, the, the leaders decided to organize officially as a church denomination in the mid-1800s. Does anybody know what year it was that the Seventh-day Adventist Church became an official denomination? 
They're all very close. It's 1863. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially organized. Now, does anybody know what year the first official Seventh-day Adventist publishing house was officially incorporated? Where the title said, Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association, or something along those lines. Okay? You would think that it'd be shortly after that, right? It was actually 1861. So the first thing that happened when they decided the name, you uh, you remember they they came together and they were brainstorming and they finally came up with the name Seventh-day Adventist? They held that meeting because they were trying to figure out how to incorporate because of the press. And so once they came up with that name, they said the first thing we have to do is incorporate the publishing house. And two years before the Adventist church existed, the Adventist church owned its own publishing house. So the work of publishing in the Adventist church is older than the church itself. That's, that's how integrated in the fabric of Adventism, literature, ministries, and publishing has been. Uh, so it, it even outdates the church itself. Uh, as literature evangelism began to grow and expand, one of the things that began to grow out of that was uh, the work of colportering. And the first Adventist colporter, does anybody know what his name was? I, I think I know what his background was, but I don't know his name. John Loughborough? No, it wasn't Loughborough. You probably haven't heard much about this guy. His name was George King. Oh, yeah. That's right. He was the first colporter. In fact, he didn't want to be a colporter initially. Does anybody know what he wanted to be? A preacher. That's right. He wanted to be a preacher. But he was a terrible preacher. Just absolutely terrible. So he would, he would practice. And uh, I, think it was, I think it was Ellen White said, you know, uh, you, need to work on, you need to work on your preaching. And so she gave him an idea. Why don't you practice? And then we'll all come in. And, and he lived with uh, another one of the pioneers. I don't remember their, uh, who it was right now. But he lived with another family, and he said, do you know who it was? God's yeah, I think it was God's Marks. So they lived, so they, they finally decided, okay, we're going to have a review. You practice, uh, get all the practice you need, and when you're ready, we're going to hold uh, a little uh, uh, service, and you can preach. And it was the Whites and the other family, and uh, they said, we're going we're gonna to do a review, and if you've gotten good enough, then we'll give you some, some chances to start preaching. And so he, he prepared, he was really diligent, you know, this is what he wanted to do, this was his dream, he wanted to advance the gospel. So he did everything he could, and he practiced, and he said, okay, I'm ready. And they came in, and he preached the sermon, and it went really bad. And they said, essentially, you're, you're not ready to be a preacher. And then they had an idea. The lady of the family said, maybe you should take some of our books... And go visit people door to door, and you can share the truth with them that way. Because the truth is written down. You don't have to know how to say it. It's all you know, written. It's not going to change, right? So he said, why don't you do that? And so he began to do it. And he started to take uh, Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. He took that door to door, and as he began to do that, he found great success as a literature evangelist. I'm sure that sometimes as I go to churches, they, they think that's probably why I'm a literature evangelist. <laughs> but uh, even, even without being able to preach, he found a lot of success as a literature evangelist. And that's how the work of colporting got started. And they began to, uh, to refine that and, and get different books. Uh, they worked with the presses to develop different things. Uh, but that's how the, the colporter work in our church got started, because of somebody who wanted to preach and somebody had an idea, why don't you just take literature and go door to door with people, and meet people uh, without literature, and and so, as you know, the Adventist Church began to grow and uh, spread around the country and even around the world, and uh, as it was doing that, in 1875, uh, Adventists had basically done nothing overseas, and now you remember if you saw that uh, video, tell the world. It seemed like most of you saw it, so I'll reference that. Uh, 
you remember they had that meeting and they, they were talking about whether or not they should expand and go overseas and, and send missionaries. And they came out and they ended up sending Jan Andrews, right? They sent him in 1874. Uh, so that was just around the time they were starting. But up until 1875, basically nothing they had done uh, overseas. Ellen White had a vision in Battle Creek uh, where she saw something a little bit different. Now, you remember the first publishing vision? She saw what kind of light? Streams of light that went all the way around the world. Now, in this vision, she, she saw points of light that were all over the world. And what that was, was she said, we need to increase our missionary work and establish places in other countries that can be points of light in spreading the gospel in those places. And that was to include publishing houses and the use of literature. In fact... Uh, J.N. Andrews, one of the first things that he did when he went to Europe was he started uh, the Signs of the Times in French. And a couple years ago, my wife and I were traveling in Europe, and we actually went, uh, we were in Switzerland, and we went to his grave. Uh, he was buried in Switzerland, and you see on his, on his uh, tombstone thing, you see uh, about the only thing that says about him was he started the publication, The Signs of the Times. So uh, it was very integral in what he was doing. Now, if you go to the place in Switzerland where he was, just to give kind of an idea, Switzerland is, you know, not probably shaped anything like that. But there, in Switzerland, you have this country is Germany. And over here, you have France. And this is Switzerland. And the place that he was was in Basel. And Basel was right here. And it, probably actually goes up more like this and the, the line is there or whatever. But it's right in, in a spot where you have access to three countries right there. So it's a strategic location as well. And so he did it in French. Now, Switzerland speaks like four different languages there. Uh, so uh, he started Signs of the Times there and it was very integral in what he was doing. One of the other first publishing houses was in Oslo. This is the first publishing house that was in uh, well, it was, uh, what's the name of the place? Just um, Christiania, I think. Uh, there's, there's a name. I get that confused with the book sometimes, um, or the character in, in uh, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. But this is one of the first publishing houses that they had there. So literature was, was uh, involved in a big way. In fact, uh, one of the stories, uh, Ellen White was over in Europe visiting uh, the publishing house in Basel, in Switzerland. And she was uh, visiting, and so they said, well, let's take you on a tour. Let's go through. And she was on a tour, and they were taking her through all the different areas where they, where they uh, you know, produced the literature, got everything ready, where they printed it. Uh, and she was going through, and she got to one particular part of the press, and as she was looking around, she thought, you know, and she began to uh, to wonder, something didn't, didn't look exactly right. And so she asked the, the guy that was giving her the tour, where's the fourth man? And he said, what do you mean? Where's the fourth? There's only ever been three people since you've been in here. She said, no, I, I had a vision. And I saw this publishing house. And there was four guys here. Where's the other guy? And they said, oh, he's, he's away or something right now. She said, as I had a vision of this publishing house... I saw that angels were helping you in your work. And she, she had been there in vision before, but the first time she was ever there, uh, she knew there was somebody missing. And so that just shows uh, one of the ways that, that she was encouraged to know that literature was one of the big emphasis points that, uh, that people should be using um, as the church began to grow. And so they began to print a lot of different uh, publications, a lot of different languages, uh, throughout Europe. One of the institutions or programs, you could say, that helped in the growth of the Adventist church was a program called the Tract and Missionary Societies. Have any of you ever heard of that? Two, maybe three or four. Tract and Missionary Societies was a program that started out as, uh, they called it the Vigilant Missionary Society, which was only for women. So I wouldn't have been able to be a part of that. But they expanded it began to call it Tracting Missionary Societies, and they asked Stephen Haskell uh, to lead out in uh, the Tracting Missionary Society. And essentially what this program was, 
was uh, an early church version of Glow. Now, that's the easiest way for us to understand now. But 11 years ago, when Glow didn't exist, you'd have had to explain it something different. Essentially, what it was is they used tracks and uh, just uh, simple forms of literature to share with everybody that they could. And they would also pair it with different missionary things. So they said, you know, if they knew of somebody that was sick, they would make a bowl of soup, take some literature, and go give it to them. They would write uh, letters and, and put tracts in it and send it out, out to people that they knew. It was just very simple uh, means of sharing the gospel with people. But the, the difference was it was a part of their culture uh, in those days. They would just do it whenever there was an opportunity. They would share literature. They would do something kind and fill the need that was there for people. And this, the Tractor Missionary Societies began to grow. In fact, uh, Tractor Missionary Societies is the basis for the Personal Ministries Department in the Adventist Church now. It's also the basis for Adventist Book Centers. So if you like the ABC, you can thank Tractor Missionary Societies. Why was that? Because they needed a central location to send the literature to from the press where it was printed. They would send it to a local Tract and Missionary Society, and that's where the churches would get their literature from. So it's kind of like a little hub where they sent the literature there, the churches would get it from there, the, the members would get it from the church, and then the members would pass it out. Kind of similar to what we do with GLOW. GLOW tracts are printed at the press, they come to the conference office, churches get it from the office, and then uh, members can get it from the churches as they pass it out. So... Uh, it, was, it was a model that, that really helped the church grow in a lot of ways. Now, you mentioned J.N. Loughborough a minute ago. Um, we're going to reference him uh, here just for a second. If you look up in the Adventist Encyclopedia, this is what it says about the Tract and Missionary Societies. Uh, it says, The story of the beginning of the work of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in many parts of the world is a story of literature evangelists preparing the way for the preacher. In all the South American countries except Peru... The Adventist work began either through Adventist publications being sent into the countries or through the work of literature evangelists. So in many countries around the world, Adventism got there first because of literature evangelism. Now, if you're wondering where you can find the encyclopedia, it's part of the Bible Commentary series. It's volume 10 and 11, I think. Um, so you can, if you look up Tract and Missionary Societies, you can read all about it. That's in the section uh, on there. So just to give you an idea... Let's go through and look at um, a good number of the countries where the work was started because of literature evangelism. Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Burma, Caribbean, Chile, China, Colombia, Denmark, Ecuador, Egypt, England, Finland, France, Ghana, Haiti, Italy, Jamaica, Mexico, Norway, Paraguay, the Philippines, Russia... Uruguay, Venezuela, Yugoslavia, and British Guyana. All those countries, the Adventist church work got started there because of literature evangelism. In fact, this last one, British Guyana, it's the only one that's not alphabetical there. <laughs> Some of you probably noticed that right from the start. Uh, British Guyana, how did the church get started there? There was uh, uh, someone who had a parcel of tracts, a package of, of small tracts, and uh, there was a ship that was going to British Guyana. And this Advent, Adventist guy went to the captain of the ship, and they said, hey, will you put this, will you take this to British Guyana? And it took some convincing, but finally he said, okay, I'll do it. So he, he took it on the ship. Uh, when they got to British Guyana, he just, he took the, the package of tracts and threw it onto the shore. That's all he did. People that were living in British Guyana, they came, they found this package, opened it up, and somehow those tracts found their way around, and people began to read them. And when the first person showed up, the missionary there, they found that a lot of people already knew some of the main beliefs that we believed as Adventists. That's all they did. He didn't do it. Nobody even went. He just tossed this package of tracts on the, uh, onto land, and that's how the Adventist church got started in British Guyana. There was publishing houses that, that were starting to be established around the world. Uh, in 1879 in Norway, we looked at some of these, or, uh, or mentioned some of these, Switzerland, France, Australia, England, South Africa, India, and Argentina were soon after that. And we already talked to, I already told you the story, Ellen White's Dream in Basel at the publishing house there. Uh, so 
really at, at the foundation of the growth and the, and the rapid expansion of the Adventist church around the world, the foundation of that was literature evangelism. And that doesn't mean that that, uh, it, that was the only thing that, that gave success, but it was really the foundation that, that w- the church missionaries and uh, pastors and evangelists built on as they went to these different places uh, for their work. Oh, apparently, my notes are telling me here it was the third man. There was two people, and, and the third guy was missing. So I, I was off by one. So, you remember the vision? She said it would start small at first, but it would be like streams of light that went clear around the world. The, the Adventist church was beginning to expand and to grow, and the influence of literature was, was uh, being felt around the world now as the Adventist church began to grow, or continued to grow. Um, we're going to talk here for a minute about the effectiveness of literature. What about today? Is literature still effective as a means of reaching people? Uh, We're going to take a look at that here for a minute. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to go. We're going to look at a few passages. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them because they're very simple, very easy to understand, but I think at the same time they're very profound. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 55. A lot of times you may have, you know, if you're involved in literature evangelism, uh, you may be questioned from time to time, is it still effective or isn't, isn't digital literature, you know, going to be the way that, that things are finished? Uh, isn't, you know, aren't e-books taking over and nobody reads books anymore? Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but let's go to God's Word first. Isaiah chapter 55, and we'll begin there in verse 8. The Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Now that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Essentially, what is God saying? You don't know very much. That's what He's saying, right? Your thoughts aren't my thoughts, and your ways aren't my ways. You don't know as much as you think you know. Now, that's the foundation that, that he's building here. Now, there's, there's some other things, obviously, that came in the chapter before that. But that's the foundation that he uses as he continues on in this passage. Verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He expands on that a little bit. He says, my thoughts aren't just a little bit better than yours. It's as far as the heaven is from the earth. That's a pretty long ways, isn't it? So are my ways higher than your ways, uh, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but they water the earth, and they make it bring forth and, and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. I told you we'd be talking about bread here. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God says, my word is going to accomplish what it's there for. And so as we share literature, as we share God's word through the printed page, it will have an impact. God says it will. And I find it interesting that God uses that foundation of saying that you don't understand the things that I do as a foundation for saying that my word is going to have an impact. It may seem like in today's day and age that literature wouldn't have an impact. It may seem, using all of the studies and technological advances that we have, that we can point to a thousand reasons that say literature wouldn't be impactful. But God says, you can do all the studying you want. You still don't know very much. My ways are higher than your ways, And my word is going to have an impact on people. Can you say amen to that? God's word will not return to him void. Go to Ecclesiastes just just before Isaiah there. I mean, not immediately before, but in relation to the whole Bible, it's pretty close. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Now, if you thought God was not able to talk any more straight than he did to Isaiah when he said, essentially, you don't know very much we're going to find a case where he does talk a little bit more bluntly even than that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, 
You know, this is one of my favorite chapters just for how plain and easy it is to, to understand. And we're, we're going to have a great example of that here in just a second. Verse 11. Cast your bread upon the waters. There's the bread again. What does the bread represent? I don't see a verse 11. Oh, verse 1. Yeah, that's it. The first verse that isn't there is verse 11. Chapter 11. Yeah, there's no 1 for the verse in my Bible. It just says 11. So that's... Okay, chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters. What does the bread represent? God's word. God's word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to how many? Seven. To seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. He's coming back to that. You don't know. You don't know very much. If the clouds are full of rain, verse 3, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, you cannot get any more plain in the Bible than that verse. I find it kind of a little bit funny. He says, wherever a tree falls, there it is. That's essentially what the verse is saying. If it falls to the north or the south, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Wherever it falls, it's laying right there. I mean, you you cannot get any more simple and plain than that, can you? I mean, that's pretty easy to understand. I, I, I bet there isn't a person in this whole city that wouldn't be able to understand that as long as they can understand what you're saying. Right? Yeah. Wherever it falls, there it lays. Verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In other words... Now, let's just give an example here. Um, uh, Yesterday, I live in Spokane. It was raining yesterday. And I had just recently washed our car. And of course, you you never want to wash your car right before it rains, right? Because it's going to get dirty again. But our car was, you know, really dirty and it needed to be washed. So I washed it and it was raining. Uh, In fact, one time, I was on my way driving to the car wash and I saw... That there was these dark clouds in the distance. And I looked up on my phone, and sure enough, it said it was going to rain in like two hours. So do you think I went and got the car washed or no? No, because it's going to get dirty right after I got done washing it. Sometimes when we see things that are going to happen, or when we see things that we think are going to happen, we'll change what we do because of that. That's exactly what he's saying here in verse 4. It says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you're, find, if you're trying to find ways not to do something, you'll be able to find them. If you're trying to find and say, well, I think it's going to rain here in a little bit, we probably shouldn't go out and pass out literature. Well, now we have waterproof glow tracks, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> you can stop by our booth and find those a little bit later. But if you're looking for reasons not to do what God asks you to do, you'll always be able to find them. And he says, don't let that keep you from doing what I've asked you to do. Uh, he says, you don't know how the bones grow uh, in, in the womb. You do not know the works of God who made everything. Notice what he says then after that in verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand, because you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. God says, in the context of planting seeds, you don't know what's going to be effective. So don't not do what I've asked you to do, because you think it's not going to be effective. I should have had that on there. Um, we'll come back to John chapter 20. But if you want to be ahead of us and you can just flip there really quick, you can go there now and put a marker there. Because we're going to come back to John chapter 20. Ellen White has an interesting quote that goes right along with this in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, and, and it sets us up for talking about the effectiveness of literature. And don't worry, the only thing I'm going to tell you is not, you don't, you're not smart enough to figure out what works. This is what she says. Our literature is to be distributed everywhere. The truth is to be sown beside all waters, for we know know not which shall prosper, this or that. That's right from Ecclesiastes we just read. And then she says this. In our erring judgment, is that good or bad judgment? That's bad judgment. In other words, we're making a bad decision. In our erring judgment, we may think it unwise 
to give literature to the very ones who would accept the truth most readily. We know not what may be the good results of giving away a leaflet containing present truth. So in other words, I might think that my neighbor, you know, at least uh, 20 years ago, people talked with their neighbors. Now it seems like people don't even know who their next door neighbor is. You know, one of, one of our neighbors, uh, we talk to, uh, you know, at least periodically. I might think that if I gave him literature, it wouldn't, be able to, it wouldn't really impact his life. I might think that, but I could be completely wrong. In fact, uh, if any of you have ever been involved in Youth Rush or, or canvassing programs, you've seen and, and experienced this firsthand, and you think, there's no way this person is going to get a book, and then they end up getting a book. In fact, uh, we used to have this book that we used, at least when I started, it was called He Taught Love. It had this purple cover, and it, like, it looked really feminine. And it's like, sometimes we go to businesses, it seemed like every time I would go into a liquor shop, the owner would buy that book. And it's like these, these like big burly motorcycle owning guys, it's like those are the guys that would buy that book. Not the great controversy, not like, you know, you, the, what you'd think these, you know, rugged guys would be interested in. They buy He Taught Love with a purple cover on it. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just a, an example that shows we can think something and, it, and things would be totally different uh, in reality. And we might not give somebody literature when they're the ones that need it and would accept the truth most readily. Some of America's fastest growing churches in the last 10 to 15 years have been uh, churches that have placed a big emphasis on sharing literature. In fact, you may have even had visitors to your home from Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, the Mormons. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses pass out more literature than everybody. I mean, they, every two weeks they pump out uh, a few hundred million pieces of literature. I mean, they, they are... Seriously, I mean, you think, how can that church be growing? Well, it's because they use literature. Even though they have some crazy beliefs, you know, they're still growing because they're using literature. One of, the, one of what I believe is the greatest reasons uh, why literature is still effective is when you look at the entire cycle of evangelism. Uh, and this is something that... that uh, to a certain extent, we have lost sight of in the Adventist church. And let me unpack that here as we talk about the effectiveness of literature. There's essentially five phases in the cycle of evangelism. There is preparing, there's planting, there's the growing, and then the harvesting and the preserving. These are the phases of evangelism. So preparing, uh, you prepare the ground, you plant the seeds... The plant grows, or the person grows in, in their knowledge and understanding of God and in their relationship with Him. And then there's harvesting, which is where somebody is baptized. And then there's preserving. You don't want that person to be baptized and then leave the church the next month, right? So there, there should be an effort to preserve uh, the work that's been done in harvesting. So these are the different uh, phases in the cycle of evangelism. Now, when, when you hear somebody say in the Adventist church, our church is going to be doing evangelism next month. What does that mean? That means we're doing an evangelistic series, which is what phase? It's harvesting. Too many times in the Adventist church, when we hear evangelism, we think harvesting. The series where we have a speaker like John Bradshaw or Sean Boonstra or Mark Finley gets up and preaches for 27 nights and there's, uh, you know, baptismal calls and people come. That's evangelism. Now, that is evangelism because that's on the scale in the cycle of evangelism, right? But when you say our church is doing evangelism, that shouldn't refer to just one segment of evangelism. Now, why is that important? Well, that's because in order to be successful here, you can't start here. In order to be, uh, you, in order to be successful at harvesting... Something has to grow first. Now, just simple agricultural. I heard, I heard uh, Chad Cruiser, he was talking about planting trees. If you're planting a fruit tree and you want to eventually get an apple from that, doesn't the, the tree have to grow before it grows an apple? 
And before the, the, the tree grows, what has to happen before that? You have to plant it. Now, we're talking about profound things in this seminar, right? You have to plant something before it grows. And before you plant it, what do you have to do? You have to prepare the ground. Too many times we think evangelism doesn't work in the church. How many times have you heard that in the last five years? Evangelism doesn't work anymore. I don't believe it. Why don't I believe it? Because when you say evangelism and you're just talking about harvesting, sure, harvesting doesn't work if, you had, if the plant hasn't grown. And if you haven't planted it, sure, harvesting is not going to work. You have to be involved in the other phases of the cycle of evangelism for evangelism to work. So when, you, when they, somebody says evangelism doesn't work anymore, that just means we're not doing evangelism the right way. Now why is that important? When I was born, and for the 50 to 70 years at least before I was born, which I think would include pretty much everybody in this room, if not everyone, unless there's somebody that's like 90 plus years old in here, which it doesn't look like there is. And if it is, you're doing great. (laughs) The culture of the United States of America, and I would even say potentially Canada, I know we have some Canadian friends here, is that it's a good thing to read the Bible. It's a good thing to study the Bible. It's a good thing to go to church on a weekly basis, right? Just just the, the idea of the culture and the mentality of people in America is that if you go to church, that's a good thing. It's not like you're coming out of church, you're getting gunned down because you went there. Like you could be in other countries, right? It's part of the culture of America. America was built on Christian principles, And so, part of the work of evangelism, I believe, was done by society for many years. In that, the seed was planted in people's minds that it's good to read the Bible. And so, they would read the Bible. And so, when we did harvesting, when we did evangelistic series in the 90s, early 2000s, even in the 80s, we saw it work, like, super well. Why? Because people had been growing in their Christian walk because the seeds of reading the Bible had been planted in their hearts and in their minds. So what happens, you fast forward to 2010, 2015, now 2018, what happens when society says it's normal for, for homosexuals to be married? It's not cool to read the Bible anymore. It's not part of, of society. And, and even if the majority of people in America believe it, it's not what media promotes. All of a sudden, the majority of the planting of seeds in people's minds in America is suddenly evaporated. And and we continue to do the same thing. That doesn't mean that we did a great job with planting before. It just means society did it for us. Does that make sense? So now when that's gone, what do we do? We just say, it doesn't work anymore. It's like your car runs out of gas. And you're like, oh, this doesn't work anymore. I might as well get rid of it. Just leave it on the side of the road. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make sense, does it? Why? If there's one part of the cycle that doesn't work, why not fix that one part instead of throw away the whole thing? That's why literature is so important now. Because literature plants the seed that we haven't been sowing very much as Adventists. Literature plants the seed in people's hearts and in their minds that will be able to grow, whether or not you're a part of that growing process or not. Sometimes you may be, and that's great. Sometimes you may not be. But that has to happen before harvesting is done. Now, sure, somebody may understand that it's good to read the Bible, and there may be some of that, but it's not like it used to be. Literature is one of the only things, notice I didn't say the only thing, one of the only things in the Adventist church that is primarily a seed-planting ministry. And that's why, one of the reasons why I believe that the literature evangelism, we talked about this already, but I didn't put it up there. LE work is mainly planting seeds. And that is one of the reasons why I believe that it's so important right now. A couple of quotes from Ellen White. Culprit Ministry, page 151. She says this about the effectiveness of literature. More than a thousand will soon be converted in one day. Most of whom, how many? 
most. Now, in my study of English, which was not one of my favorite subjects in school, that means more than 50%, right? So that means out of 1,000, at least 501. Now, I'm not concerned you know, about exact numbers here, but it's, it's a good chunk. It's not just one or two. Most of whom will trace their first convictions to the reading of our publications. In other words, literature is not this entire cycle. I'm not, I'm not advocating that literature should be the only thing that we do in the church. No, but it shouldn't be neglected. And at the end of time, there's going to be a large harvest of people who have made decisions for Jesus because they were back here planting the seeds using literature, the reading of our publications. One other quote, Christian Service, page 146. She says, We have been asleep, as it were, regarding the work that might be accomplished through the circulation of well-prepared literature. In other words, we don't know how effective it can be to use well-prepared literature. Now, I said we would talk about digital literature. We're going to go ahead and talk about that, and then we're going to end there, um, as we have about three minutes left. Um, In publishing ministry, there's an an interesting passage that I came across that, of course, there were no e-books back in Ellen White's day, but I came across this passage, and it made me think that's what... That, that discusses that. So let's just look at it here. This is how she starts. She says, Many are becoming disgusted with the inconsistencies, the errors, and the apostasy of the churches. How many times, if you've ever knocked on any doors, how many times have somebody, has somebody said to you, I don't like going to church because it's messed up. I don't like going to church because there's hypocrites there. I don't like going to... I, I believe in the Bible, but I don't want to go to church. I don't believe in a certain denomination. Have you ever heard that? That's what Ellen White said. Many are becoming disgusted with the inconsistencies, the errors, and the apostasy of the churches. The quote continues on. This is what she says. There are many who are seeking for light in the darkness. If our papers, tracts, and books expressing the truth in plain Bible language could be widely circulated many would find that they are just what they want. This is in the context of saying that people are disgusted with the state of churches in society. People are upset about the way that churches are operating, and if they could get our literature, they would find that's exactly what they're looking for. Ellen White said this a long time ago. Isn't this shaping up to be what she was talking about? Notice what she says continuing on. But many of our brethren act as though the people were to come to them or to send to our offices to obtain publications when thousands do not know that they exist. And there's a very simple principle here that I don't want you to miss. If somebody doesn't know that our literature exists, they're not going to go looking for it. Right? So if you have digital literature... If you think by putting a link on your Facebook page is going to suddenly save everybody, or you think that, that by having digital literature around that people can access on a website, let me tell you what, that person is not going to search for your literature because they don't know it's there. That's one thing that's so great about literature is you can pass out a tract and it, somebody will come across this even if they're not interested in it initially. If they don't know that it exists, they're not going to find it. That's a limitation of digital literature. You're only reaching people that are looking for it. And so that's one of the reasons why I believe that printed literature is going to be the main thrust of that quote that we looked at uh, about literature's effectiveness at the end of time because it it goes to where the people are at. Uh, And I know our time is up here. Uh, just one quote that I want to finish with. Corporate Ministry, page 6 to 7. This is the very work the Lord would have His people do at this time. We cannot too highly estimate this work. So is literature evangelism effective? Yes, it is. Um, did you have a question or you just wanted to... So how do they get it? We have to take it to them. Yeah, we, we have to take it to them for them uh, to be able to see it. So next session, if you come back and join us, we're going to talk about some of the practical ways. Let's just close with a word of prayer here really quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at literature. We thank you for the impact it's made on the Adventist church historically and for the impact that it will have in the future. And so we just pray that um, 
you would help us uh, to be able to remember to share literature everywhere that we go. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.